The following audio is from Jacob's Well Church. For more information about Jacob's Well Church, please visit www.jacobswellgb.org. How many of you here are hosting Thanksgiving? So curious. Hosting, hosting Thanksgiving? Are you hosting Thanksgiving? You are, you are a brave soul. You're a brave soul. You know, Thanksgiving is a great time of the year. Uh, it's a great day to reunite with family and with friends and to give thanks. But it can also be a very anxious day. Uh, for those that are hosting Thanksgiving, they can rifle through a bunch of questions like, do I have enough seating? Is my table big enough? Do I have the right food? Will I have enough food? How will this food get done? How will that food get done? Will they like the food? If you're visiting someone for Thanksgiving and you don't know them, you would be asking the questions, will they like me? Will I like them? If it's family, well, that just causes anxiety in and all of itself, doesn't it? I mean, all of the baggage that you put aside for 364 days of the year all comes crashing together in the Thanksgiving meal. For me, the anxiety hits with actually the travel to Thanksgiving. It's a long trip to where we go, and I'm anxious about the kids. Will they cry? Will they scream? Will they whine? Will I cry? Will I scream? Will I whine? I mean, there is anxiety that surrounds this holiday, even though it is a great holiday. And we know that anxiety persists far on beyond Thanksgiving. Today, we're talking about anxiety, as Jessica mentioned. And the freedictionary.com gives a psychiatric definition of anxiety. It says, anxiety is a state of apprehension uncertainty, and fear resulting from the anticipation of a realistic or fantasized threatening event or situation, often impairing physical and psychological functioning. Now, let me give you a simpler definition from Wikipedia, which you know is always correct. Wikipedia, which I think is a helpful definition, simply defines anxiety. Anxiety is an unpleasant state of inner turmoil. Anxiety is an unpleasant state of inner turmoil. Anxiety is a massive problem in America. You know, we don't face things like Ebola or homelessness or starvation to the degree that other nations face those things, but we face anxiety maybe more than any other nation on the face of the earth. The statistics are staggering. According to the Anxiety and Depression Association of America, anxiety disorders are the most common mental illness in the U.S., affecting more than 40 million Americans over the age of 18. That is 18% of the population that are clinically diagnosed with an anxiety disorder. Anxiety disorders cost the U.S. more than $42 billion a year. That is one-third, almost one-third of the country's $148 billion total mental health bill. WebMD actually had an article, and it was entitled, The United States of Anxiety. I asked some counselors in our congregation this week, I asked them how big of a problem anxiety was. One said, anxiety is pandemic, particularly in a culture where control and personal autonomy is treasured. For someone wrestling with anxiety, it is an overwhelming sense of losing control and their mind becomes the place in which they attempt to gain back control by playing out a variety of what ifs. What if Uncle Louie shows up drunk? 
What if Sally doesn't talk to me? Another counselor teased this out, and he said, we asked these what-if questions, saying, what if I lose my job? What if something bad happens to me or my spouse or my kids? What if I don't have enough money for retirement? What if my enemies find me? What if I find out I'm irrelevant in life? And so we play out these what-if questions, and we try to control the future with our mind, which we have no control over, and it draws us into anxiety. All of us struggle with anxiety to one degree or another. You know, I don't think of myself as a very anxious person, but as I'm processing this week, as I'm processing the passage this week, I realize that I just term it differently. I'll say things like, I am stressed out, or I am overburdened, or I have so much to do, and I'll just, right? That was Martha. Martha was anxious. She had so much to do. And so anxious is something we all deal with to one degree or another because we live in a fallen world and we are fallen people. In today's passage, God is going to give us a command. And it's a command that might cause you some anxiety. It's a command that causes me some anxiety. And the command is this. Do not be anxious about anything. That's kind of an anxious command, isn't it? Like, I can't be anxious about anything. Oh, now I got to try hard not to be anxious. And yet here we see the good news. We see the remedy for our anxiety. And the remedy is the surpassing peace of God. If you, if you will, please open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4. We'll be looking at verses 4 through 7 today. If you're in the red Bible, it's page 981. If you're in the children's Bible, it is page 1455. The Philippian church had many reasons to be anxious. Not only the normal reasons of life to be anxious, but there was also division in the church, which added increased anxiety. They faced persecution for their faith. Those that were torturing them either socially or physically or harassing them. And so Paul writes into this situation, do not be anxious about anything. Now, Paul knew what it was like to be in anxious situations. Paul did not live an easy-peasy life. Paul knew what it was like to be on the brink of death many times. He knew what it was like to be beaten and to be thrown in jail. Paul writes this letter not, not sipping coffee on a beach in Hawaii, but he writes this letter on death row in, in Rome, waiting for a trial that will determine the outcome of whether he lives or dies. This is the the definition of an anxiety-ridden situation. And yet, in this situation that he is in, in writing into the Philippians, he says this, do not be anxious about anything. And so how do we get that? How do we do that? How do we get the peace that surpasses all understanding? Well, we'll see today in Philippians chapter 4. So read along with me if you would. Philippians 4, verse 4 through 9. Excuse me, 4 through 7. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts 
and your minds in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Lord God, we pray for your peace to come down now. That your peace would conquer our hearts. That it would press out the anxiety that so often overwhelms us, Lord. That we would know this great peace that is beyond even articulation or comprehension. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was in seminary, I had a side job where I worked at a golf course, and I was in the clubhouse, and there was one rainy afternoon where it was just me and the manager who was the golf pro, and nobody was coming in because it was a dreary day. This man hired me, and so he knew that I was in seminary, and he had never had any spiritual conversation with me before. And on that rainy, dreary day, he had one spiritual question for me, and it was his first and last spiritual question, and his question was simply this. Does your religion give you peace? Does your religion give you peace? I think our hearts long and are seeking for peace. And so many times people turn to religion for that very reason, to find inner peace. No matter what religion they're turning to, they're looking for inner peace. We look for peace in a whole host of ways besides religion. We look for peace in solitude, in vacations, in lake houses. And all of those do present us a certain amount of peace. That's why we do them. But what I want to know, what this passage addresses, is how can we have peace when there is no peace around you? How can we have peace when everything in your life is falling apart? When the world comes crashing down, how can you and I have peace? How can we have peace when the daily agenda of your life It's chaos and pressure to perform. How can we have peace on the inside of us when the outside of us is anything but peace? Well, today's scripture, we're going to see three things about peace. First is the path of peace. How do we get peace when we are wrestling with anxiety? How do we get a permanent, untouchable peace? And we'll spend most of our time on that. But secondly, the proclamation of peace. When we have peace with God, what does this tell an anxious world? And thirdly, the promised protection of peace. How does peace benefit our soul? First, let's look at the path of peace. How do we get anxiety-killing, untouchable peace? Well, in this passage, Paul gives us two commands to guide us on this path of peace. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding. The first command that he gives to us to guide us on this path of peace is to rejoice in the Lord. Verse 4, he says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Paul is commanding the Philippians to rejoice and us to rejoice because if we are taking anxiety out of our life, we have to replace it with something greater. And so he says that you are to rejoice. You are to attack anxiety with rejoicing. Now, it's very interesting. I was listening to a sermon this week, and Tim Keller gave a definition of joy that I thought was very provocative. He said, joy is a spiritual buoyancy. It's a spiritual buoyancy. And so he gave the illustration of the Apostle Paul, who says, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. 
The world, his circumstances, the turmoil was trying to drown Paul because of his joy and his spiritual buoyancy. Even though he was afflicted, he was not crushed. Even though he was perplexed, he did not despair. Even though he was persecuted, he was not forsaken. And even though he was struck down, he was not destroyed because of a rejoicing that surpassed his situation. His rejoicing that surpassed and replaced his anxiety. And so the question is, how can we have that buoyancy, that unextinguishable joy? Well, we don't get it simply by focusing on rejoicing and focusing on, on being happy and, and delighting. Paul doesn't just say rejoice, but he says rejoice in the Lord. You see, we have a God that loves to rejoice. A God that rejoices over you with singing. And we were created in his image. And so all of us were created to rejoice. And so Paul doesn't just simply say rejoice because everybody can do that. But he says rejoice in the Lord. You see, whatever you tie your rejoicing to. That is how dependable your rejoicing is. Maybe you tie your ultimate rejoicing to your job. It's good to have joy in your job. But if you tie your ultimate rejoicing in your job, what happens when you lose your job? What happens when you underperform or when the new boss is horrible? What do you do when your job is gone? Well, as your job goes, so goes your rejoicing. Or maybe you tie your ultimate rejoicing into your family, into your wife, your husband, your kids. But what if they disappoint you? What if they turn on you? What if they die? Well, then your rejoicing dies with them. Or maybe your ultimate rejoicing is in getting a little better grades or a little bit more money or a few more friends or just the right lover. Whatever you tie your ultimate rejoicing to, as that thing goes, so goes your rejoicing. And if you want a rejoicing that is not contingent on changing variables and shifting situations, there is only one place you can turn to rejoice in. We cannot rejoice in things that are undependable, but we must rejoice in the one who says and fulfills his promise. I will never leave you nor forsake you. If you want unsinkable joy, you have to tie your rejoicing to Christ and to the Lord. There's a movie that came out in the 80s, and I actually thought about this this morning, so I didn't get to look over the details of it. But um, there was a movie called Twister in the 80s. Do you guys remember that? And uh, in that movie, there's, they're trying to study tornadoes in Oklahoma. And so they're chasing these storms, and they're trying to set up this device, and they want the, the tornado to go over it so it will lift up all these little instruments so they can read the tornado and things like that. And they keep failing at doing that because the tornado tips it over or whatever. It misses it. And so they have an F5, a huge tornado coming, and they decide to go by the storm, really close to the storm, to set it up to make sure that it takes off in there. And they set it up, and then they realize that they can't escape the storm that the storm is coming, that they can't flee from it because it's coming their direction. And so they run and they look for a place to hide. They look for a place to tie themselves up to. And so they run into this barn and they don't tie themselves up to the barn. They tie themselves up to this metal pole that goes deep into the ground. I think it's something that you tie horses to. 
Because they're confident that that thing is secure. That thing, that thing is not movable. And they know that whatever they tie themselves to, as those things go during the storm, so goes their life. They didn't tie themselves to a mobile home. <laughs> they didn't tie themselves to a tree. They tied themselves to something that they knew would still be there when the storm passes over. You see, whatever you tie your joy to, what, whatever happens to that thing, your joy follows it. And so the only place we can go to cure anxiety is to tie our rejoicing to the Lord who is stable. You see, anxiety is built on this fact that you do not know what's going to happen. But this one thing we do know, that the Lord God will never leave you nor forsake you. And because you know that, to find your rejoicing in him who is stable relieves us of our anxiety because we know with certainty that he will never leave us nor forsake us. Albert Barnes, if you're ever looking for a good online free commentator, Albert Barnes is a great one to look at. And he says this on the passage. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. It is the privilege of the Christian of Christians to do this. Not at certain periods and at distant intervals, but at all times they may rejoice that there is a God and Savior. They may rejoice in the character, law, and government of God, in his promise, and in communion with him. If everything else changes, yet the Lord does not change. If the source of all other joy are dried up, yet this is not, and there is not a moment of a Christian's life in which he may not find joy in the character, law, and I would add presence and promises of God. And so the first step to the path of this unknowable, unimaginable peace is to replace your anxiety by rejoicing in the Lord who is certain and true. Secondly, we rejoice in the Lord, but we also pray to the Lord. Verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. To explain the importance of prayer, I want to kind of work in reverse order through verse 6. And so at the end, Paul tells us that instead of being anxious, that we should go to God by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving letting our requests be made known to God. And so Paul gives this overarching command that we should pray, but then he gives us two subcategories of how we should pray. First, he says we should pray with supplication and making requests. This simply means to ask God for things, to ask God that he would help us with the test, to ask God that he would help us with safe travel, to ask God that he would help our business blossom. That we are to pray to God and ask God because he's in charge of all things. He's in control of all things. And he is working all things for his good pleasure. And so he is the one that we go to and we ask. And so what we do is we take our worries. We take our anxieties. And we take them to God. And we ask him. And we let God worry about it. Because he's going to be up all night anyways. And so we take him to God and we say, God, here is our anxiety. Here is our worry. Here is our desire. And so we go to God making supplication and request, but we also go to God with thanksgiving. Paul says, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Whenever we go asking God, 
we must also go thanking God because it keeps our asking in the right priority, in the right frame of mind, in the right context. You know, as we come up to celebrate Thanksgiving, and it's funny because I hear different stories about Thanksgiving, but, but we know that it was the pilgrims who celebrated this first Thanksgiving day. And, and many of those pilgrims died because of disease and starvation and cold. And yet in the midst of the storms, in the midst of the anxiety, in the midst of the potential of these most horrible things, they took a chance to sit down and give thanks to God. Because giving thanks to God, even in the midst of the storms, reminds us of the one who is over those storms. Thanksgiving protects our heart because Thanksgiving sets our heart on the giver and not the gifts. And Thanksgiving puts our asking in perspective because it reminds us that God has already taken care of us for so long. He's been so faithful and so good to us. And so when we go asking, we should also go Thanking God. And so in our anxiety, we must pray, making requests and thanksgiving. As we continue to work backwards, we see the pervasiveness of this command. Do not be anxious about anything. Anything is a lot of things, isn't it? Anything is everything. But in everything, by prayer. You know, when Paul says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, pray. He is reminded of two really beautiful truths. The first is this. There is no situation too big for God. Do you have cancer? Pray for God to cure your cancer. Is your marriage a wreck? Pray for God to restore your marriage. Do you have a family member that you want to know the Lord, but seems so driven against it? Pray the Lord would save their soul. There is no request, no situation too big for God. That's the first thing we learn. The second thing we learn, which might even be more important for us to understand today, is that as there is no situation too big for God, there is also no situation too small for God. There's no situation in your life that God does not care about. I can't tell you how many times I have prayed, Lord, Help me find my car keys. I'm late. I need to go. Where are they? I can't tell you how many times I have walked into a room and said, Lord, why did I come into this room? I can't tell you how many times I've shown up at a place and said, Lord, can I find a close parking spot? Because I'm running late again. 1 Thessalonians 5 says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, giving thanks in all things, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. You know, we aren't supposed to use prayer like a fire extinguisher that we only break out in case of emergencies or like a suit and tie that you break out for weddings, funerals, and when you lose a bet, right? That's not how prayer is to be used. Prayer is supposed to be something we are to do without ceasing. The will of God is for you to pray without ceasing because there is no prayer too big for God and there is no prayer too small for God. You know, my kids, my adorable little kids are, are 
our chat says need machines. We are need machines. They are need machines. And so when we sit down for dinner, um, first off, it takes quite an effort to get down and get everybody sitting down for dinner. But once we sit down for dinner, we sit down and we say grace. And when grace is over, what is the next thing a parent does? They get up, right? Mommy, will you cut my food? Where's the ketchup? Where's the mustard? Can I have some water? Where's my fork? Right? And as soon as you get everybody taken care of, right? And you sit down and you eat. Then they ask, can I have seconds? Can I please be dismissed? Because you're spending all of this time taking care of them. And to be honest, for Trish and I, and for those of you who are parents, you know, this wears us out. And yet God not only asks us, but commands us to act like our children. Throughout scripture, God is daring you to annoy him in prayer. Martin Luther's barber asked him how he should pray. And Martin Luther said, a good prayer mustn't be too long. Do not draw it out. Prayer ought to be frequent and fervent. I love that. Prayer should be frequent and fervent. It doesn't have to be too long. See, we cannot pray too much. God wants us to acknowledge that we are need machines and to pray to him constantly, both for big things and for small things, petitioning him and thanking him. Because unlike me, unlike Trish, unlike us, God does not grow faint and he does not grow weary. And so he wants you to pray to him in all situations. Now, I know often we are discouraged in prayer. Because we pray to God and we say he didn't answer us. But the reality is God answers every single one of your prayers. He answers every single one of your prayers. Notice this verse doesn't say if you're anxious about anything, pray and you'll get your way. It's not what it says. There are so many times we pray in error, and that's why we pray, Lord, let your will be done, right? It's kind of like the safety in our prayer. Ask whatever we want, but let your will be done. So when we pray, we pray to God, and God responds. And sometimes he says yes. Sometimes he says no. And sometimes he says later. You know, my kids, we still have bags of Halloween candy left. And my kids will say, can I have some candy? And sometimes I will say, yes, my dear child, enjoy your candy. But there are other times I say, no, you just brush your teeth. You are going to bed. You are not getting any candy right now. And yet other times I say later, mama just cooked a big supper. We're about to eat. After supper, you can have a piece of candy. And I say these things because I can see the big picture. And if we can see the big picture compared to our kids, how much bigger of a picture does God see compared to us? And so when we come to God and we ask him for things, he may say yes, he may say no, he may say later, but we have this confident hope that he is doing what is best for you and for me because he works everything for the good of those who love him. And so we go asking God frequently and freely, knowing that God will answer us according to his good plan and not ours. And so whether you're anxious or not anxious, pray without ceasing, asking from God and thanking from God. Now, there's one last thing in prayer. You know, we learn that prayer should be frequent, that we should make requests and thanksgiving and we pray for big things and small things. 
But all of it is for naught without one more glorious truth, which is found at the end of verse 5. And I love these five words. The Lord is at hand. Better translated, the Lord is near. Why can we pray to the Lord anytime, any place, anywhere, in any situation? Because God is not busy in a distant universe. Because God is not busy with people more important than you are. You can go to God and pray to him anytime, anywhere, anything, because the Lord is near. I don't know about you, but when that truth evades my heart, it presses anxiety out. Because I know that the Lord is near. The great God of the universe, the Lord God Almighty, the lover of our soul is near. And we can go to him in prayer. And so if you are anxious, there's a path of peace that's laid out for us. Rejoice in the Lord because he is one thing that you can tie yourself to that will not move. And pray to the Lord without ceasing in big and small things, knowing that the Lord is near. So that is the path of peace. Secondly, the proclamation through peace. Verse 5 says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. This term reasonableness seems like it can be translated a million different ways. If you have a different translation than ESV, it probably translates it different than that. The King James translates it moderation, NIV, gentleness. It could also be translated kindly, lovingly, equitable, fair, mild, gentle. You know, to me, it almost seems like this word encapsulates the fruit of the spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. That, that these things should be evident, should be known to everyone who is around you. And it's interesting because this command is given in between this command to rejoice in the Lord and to not be anxious, but to pray about everything. And so this, this peace that comes from these things, this fruit that bears from peace in your life should be evident to all. And the peace we have when we rejoice in the Lord and when we pray to the Lord is a peace that is attractive to the world. It is a peace that surpasses all understanding, but everybody is so hungry for. It is a peace that proclaims to an anxiety-ridden world that our God is near and he is good. And he grants us peace, not just in the good times, not just at the lake house, but in the most difficult times of life. This was illustrated powerfully back in Acts chapter 16. That's how we started this series on Philippians. Paul and Silas go to Philippi to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's this slave teenage girl that is following them around and she, she can prophesy. So she's predicting things and, and they, 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 they cast the demon out of the girl. And the people are angry because that was their prophet was her fortune telling abilities. And so we read that they beat Paul and then they hand Paul over to the magistrates and the magistrates strip Paul and Silas naked and beat them with rods. And then it says, when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them securely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. 
And we talked about this in great detail, but just recap, the Philippian jailer would not have been a, a lovely, cuddly type of guy. He would have been a guy who liked to inflict pain, probably an ex-military guy. Paul and Silas are delivered to this Philippian jailer, and they are dripping in blood, most likely have broken bones. And what he does is he puts them in the worst place in the prison. He puts them in the inner part of the prison where there is little daylight and little fresh air. And he fastens them to stocks, stocks that would torture them and stretch them out. This would be a place of great anxiety. And yet we see how Paul and Silas respond. As the story continues, it says about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. In the midst of the most devastating circumstances, they find a peace that surpasses all understanding. And they rejoice in the Lord. And it became evident to the jailer and to all who were there that the Lord was near. As we read on, we read that, and suddenly as, as they're singing hymns and praying to God, it says, and the prisoners were listening to them. Important, remember, the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake. So the foundation of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were open and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that prisoners had escaped. That would be the punishment. If a prisoner escaped, the guard would be killed. And so he thought, I'll just take care of it myself. But Paul cried with a loud voice, do not harm yourselves, for we are all here. We are all here. Now, this is what amazes me. I mean, it's amazing that Paul and Silas that were just tortured by this guy don't run away. But what's even more amazing to me is that all the prisoners were there. None of the prisoners ran away. Why? Because they were hungering for the peace and the joy that Paul and Silas had. They wanted to know why were they singing? Why were they rejoicing? Who were they praying to? They wanted that more than their freedom. You see the, the peace that God gives to us. The peace that surpasses all understanding. It's something that our world would do anything to gain. We read verse 29 as it continues. The jailer called for the lights and rushed in. Trembling in fear fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? The peace of God is not when danger is absent. But the peace of God is when God is present. And so we have this peace that surpasses all understand, understanding. And it proclaims to a watching world. That in the midst of anxiety, there is a peace that is offered to you. See, anyone can have peace when they're in the right conditions. When they're sipping a cup of coffee and the house is quiet and nobody is disturbing them. But what we see is that God gives us a peace that we can have in every area of our life. Even when it is the most difficult and horrible situations we will ever find ourselves in. Because the Lord is by our side. So we see the path of peace. We see the proclamation through peace. And finally, the promised protection of peace. In this passage, we have many commands. Verse 4, we are commanded twice to rejoice in the Lord. Verse 5, we are commanded to let our reasonableness, or whatever that word should be translated, let our reasonableness 
be known to others. Verse 6, we are commanded to not be anxious and commanded to pray, giving requests and thanksgiving. It's a lot of requests for three verses. But then we come to our last verse. And our last verse is not a command. It's a promise. And it says this. And the peace of God, the peace that originates in God, the peace that God possesses, the peace that God gives, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This term guard is a vivid military term. It's a picture of a detachment of soldiers protecting a city. You know, when I think of this, I think of the Alamo, right? We're told, remember the Alamo. And at the Alamo, you had these soldiers protecting this, this mission slash military base from oncoming Mexican soldiers. And there was waves of them coming in and they fought as hard as they could. And they withstood the first wave and the second wave. But finally, with the third wave, they could do no more. The good news is that our hearts and minds are not protected by the Roman army, by the Texan army, or by the American army. Our hearts and minds are not protected by our bank account, by our security system, or by our life insurance. Our hearts are protected by the peace of God, which transcends all understanding. That means the peace of God defends us from being consumed with anxiety. Have you ever been there? I've been there. Have you ever been consumed with stress, consumed with fear, consumed with worry? And what we learn is that the peace of God protects us like an army from our hearts and our mind being consumed by these things. You know, there are a lot of things to be anxious about. Our health, our career, our future. But there is one who is Lord over all those things. And he promises protection from those things. When you have peace in him, he protects our hearts. So let's recap. When we are anxious, there is a path of peace to rejoice in the Lord, to make him your joy. He, our firm foundation for rejoicing, because he will not waver. That we should pray without ceasing in big and small things, knowing that the Lord is near. And that as we have this peace, which surpasses all understanding, it proclaims to the world that God is near. And it guards our hearts and our minds from being consumed with anxiety and fear. And so let me ask you this question. What are you anxious about this morning? Or maybe better yet, are you consumed with anxiety, with worry, with fear? Do you long for, have you never known the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding? One important truth that we learn in Scripture is that you can never have the peace of God until you have peace with God. You can never have the peace of God until you have peace with God. And so are you at peace with God? That may be why you've never experienced this peace, because you are not with peace with God. It's so interesting in this passage, in verse 7, it says, it talks about the peace of God. In verse 9, which we'll cover later, it talks about the, the God of peace. And so the peace of God, the God of peace, but how do we get peace with God? Well, it, it, the answer is in the last three words of verse 7. 
Let's look at verse 7 again. It says, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds. Here it is. In Christ Jesus. If we want a peace that surpasses all understanding, if we want peace in the depths of our soul, it is only found in Jesus Christ. Because at the cross, Jesus was our peace offering. He gave us peace with God by taking on our sin and the wrath of God and giving us peace with God that we could now experience the peace of God. Romans 5 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. If you want the peace of God, the only way to get it is if you have peace with God, which comes in Jesus Christ. Long ago, there was a man who was searching out the perfect artistic rendering of peace. Again, our soul's desire to find peace. He's looking for a perfect artistic rendering of peace, and he was unsatisfied with what he found, and so he issued this, this challenge. For artists to paint the most beautiful picture of peace. And so all of these artists got very excited and it stirred their imaginations and they sent in these paintings from far and wide. And then the great day of revelation occurred in which the judges uncovered one piece after another after another. And as the viewers saw these pieces revealed, they oohed and they awed and they clapped. And then they got down to the final two paintings. They uncovered the second to last painting, and it was a beautiful painting. A painting of a mirror-smooth lake with pine trees surrounding it. And a grassy shore with a flock of sheep grazing undisturbed. The audience thought, surely this is the winner. And then they revealed the last painting. I'm assuming it was the winning painting, but they revealed the last painting. The, the man who, who issued the challenge reveals the last painting. And as he revealed the last painting, the crowd gasped in surprise. It was a picture of a tumultuous waterfall cascading down a rocky cliff and, and clouds in the sky that were threatening lightning and rain and storm. And so they thought, surely this is a joke. Surely this could not be the painting that exhibits, that expresses peace. But if you look closely in that painting, there was a tree that was implanted into the cliff. And in the tree, in the elbow of one of the branches of the tree, sat a content, undisturbed, peaceful mother bird sitting on top of her eggs with wings spread wide, showing a peace that transcended all of the turmoil that was going on around her. See, the little bird had peace in the midst of the storm, in the midst of the raging waterfall, because it was found in the tree. If you want peace, the peace that you have always been longing for, you will not gain it by ignoring the storms of stressful situations or by ignoring the waterfall of pressures that come upon you. Peace will only come in the midst of the storm, in the midst of the turmoil, when you find yourself in Jesus Christ. The reality is this. Final thought. We have 
many sources, many potential sources for fear and anxiety. I mean, the list could go on and on and on of the phobias that are out there. There are so many sources of potential anxiety, but there is only one source for peace. Don't look anywhere else. There is only one source for a peace that surpasses all understanding. And it's found in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, I can imagine as you headed towards your death, the anxiety that was looming over. And yet you rested in the sovereign will of your heavenly father. Lord, grant us more peace. Grant us a peace that surpasses all understanding. Lord, I pray that as we go through this week and certain things arise that would cause us anxiety, that we would remember your words, Lord. That, that you would, by your Holy Spirit, bring to mind, no, wait, let me rejoice in the Lord because he is certain and true. Let me pray to the Lord, big or small. And may we know that peace that guards our heart, Lord God. Lord, as we come to your table, we are reminded that peace came at a cost, a violent cost, in which you became the peace sacrifice on our behalf. God, as we take these elements, Lord, please, Lord, make them beautiful in our eyes. As we consume them, let it remind us of a peace that we have with our Heavenly Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.